When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you love my show, you're going to love the official Lakers podcast on Podcast One Sportsnet. Join Emmy Award-winning sports reporter Susie Schuster and co-host Aaron Warsell as they discuss Lakers news of the day and break down the upcoming season with some of the biggest guests around, including recent interviews with Shaquille O'Neal, Magic Johnson, and LeBron James. Check out the official Lakers podcast every week on Podcast One Sportsnet or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest for this week is Chris Herring of 538, and we go through a variety of topics, but the meat of this show is about the Jimmy Butler, Minnesota situation, something that Chris is very familiar with having covered Butler for years, both spending time when he was in Chicago and then last year in Minnesota. And so we got into the logistics of how all this happened, the timing, where we go from this point. And so a lot of good discussion. Then towards the end, we talk about the storylines that we're most interested in for the upcoming season. This episode is brought to you by the new CW show, All American, which launches next week betonline.ag, where you can use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus, Pluto TV, and our friends at TrueCar. Episode runs about an hour, lots of substance, especially on the Jimmy Butler thing. think you'll really enjoy it. Here you go. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me, as always. So we'll talk more broadly about the season, but I think the place to start is with the whole Jimmy Butler-Timberwolves drama. And I think there are a couple different angles of this that are important to discuss. And the most important tension is probably just, for me, the issues of having your key personnel decision maker, you know, that could be GM team president, it goes by different names in different organizations, and your head coach be the same person. Because in a circumstance like this, a general manager is supposed to take the long view and a coach is supposed to take a little bit of a shorter view. And when it's the same person, you can get in circumstances where the coach really, really doesn't want to trade Jimmy Butler because those sorts of trades very rarely help the team in the near term. That's absolutely the, the issue here is, is that you, you kind of spelled it out already. Thibodeau is in a situation where the, the short view is even more important than it normally would be because he is kind of in what a lot of people would view as a make or break year. Uh, obviously, if they don't win this season and they don't get back to the playoffs with this amount of young talent and kind of this investment, this is a team that, you know, all of a sudden scraping kind of the, the top, the upper echelon of what teams are paying to put their, their clubs together. Uh, there's been a real investment here. They've, they've handed out a couple of max deals. Obviously, they'd like to, to sign Butler to one as well. But you, you look at the situation, and like you said, Thibodeau doesn't want to give up a player who he can lean on that heavily, who can lead the league in minutes, who you know can be in the MVP conversation when he's healthy, who can be the best player on a team with a, a guy that also averages 21 and 10 or whatever it was last year uh, at a young star center. But the reality is Butler doesn't want to be there. And so and I was there on media day in Minneapolis, and 
you know, Thibodeau was asked straight up, like, do you want to do this? And of course he doesn't want to do it for the reasons that we just laid out. And so if you just put the ball in his hands, as far as making a deal, you, you can make it seem as if you're open to trading someone by asking for you know, LeBron and, you know, and whoever else you might want that realistically you're not ever going to get in a trade, especially for teams that, you know, are trying to make their own push for the playoffs. They're not going to give up everyone they have. But in this case, you know, if you keep asking for kingmaker sort of deal, you're not going to get that, especially with all the risks that are involved with Butler and the idea that he's a free agent. So that's kind of my question. It's like, what exactly are the Timberwolves asking for? And obviously they should be asking for a decent return here. But to expect one uh, this late, we're not even in camp anymore. You know, the preseason is almost over. And so you can't expect to get that much. It's just really horrible timing. You know, you probably lose leverage in the same way that, that teams did last year. You figured with Paul George, at least at the beginning, because he's kind of already spelled out where he'd like to go. And it seems like he wants to go to a bigger market um, where he would be more likely to resign. But it, it's kind of a mess, like you said, because Thibodeau obviously has his own reasons for not wanting to trade someone of Butler's caliber. But if you're the Timberwolves and if you had someone there taking more of a long view, you would want to get rid of him as soon as possible to try to make sure that you're not hurting yourself as far as the chemistry of this roster going into the season and what is a a very important season for this young team. And something I thought of while you were talking that parallels that fair point is having your head coach be your personnel guy leads to this problem with Jimmy Butler. Like he knows Jimmy Butler is a, a really good player as nobody would really dispute. And so if that's more the foundation of how you think about players in the league, as opposed to the combination of player and contract or player contract and age, that can lead to you overvaluing certain assets like a really good player. Because yes, Jimmy Butler is awesome. Like Jimmy Butler is an all NBA guy. When he's healthy, he can even be beyond that. I usually would probably see him below the MVP conversation, but in that range, that's still a really valuable player. The problem is, if you're Miami, if you're New York or the Lakers or whoever, the Clippers, anybody, any of these teams, not only is Jimmy Butler only under contract for one season and then an unrestricted free agent after that, but he's going to be 30 before he signs his next contract, and he's eligible to be paid a lot of money. So, yes, getting him is great, but there isn't as much surplus value with Jimmy Butler as there is with a lot of other guys because he's going to get paid a lot of money right away. There's a risk that he's going to leave, and he has a ludicrous amount of miles on his tires. So you have this worry that at some point, I mean, and his once and now current teammate, Lowell Dang, is a great example of this. Like, well, Dang was an awesome player, but you reach a certain point where you just can't physically bear that workload anymore. And so that leads to Thibodeau saying, well, this guy's really good. We need to get a good price back for him. But then other teams saying, A, you don't have that much leverage, and B, the asset you're giving us is different than just Jimmy Butler, the player for this year. Oh, completely. That, that's part of what makes this even more of a, a mess, in my opinion, is that Butler is not typical in, in like three or four different ways. Number one, you know, if, we're, if we were talking about Kyrie uh, a year ago, that's different than this because Kyrie had a, you know, really had two years left on his deal. And so there wasn't necessarily the pressure, you know, the pressure that now the Raptors have and the Thunder had with Paul George. That's basically a little bit different here because you've, you've got Jimmy for one year. Uh, you need to make sure that he's coming back. And so obviously, you know, the, the one good thing is that he's kind of given some of these teams an indication or in, at least the Timberwolves an indication of which team he'd be open to going to or not have a big issue with. And so maybe there's still time to get the extension done, um, you know, whether he would want to do that or not. I'm not sure. But 
that would make it a little bit more palatable. But yeah, Butler is not traditional in the sense that he's played so many minutes. I wrote a story uh, a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, that just looking back at the last five years, the number of games that someone has played 45 minutes or more in, Butler was at 26 over those last five years. The next closest player was at 15. And then the next closest player after that, I think, was at 13. So Butler's played almost as many 45-minute games as like the next two closest people combined. One of them is LeBron. And so that's, that's just kind of crazy when you think about the fact. And, and obviously a lot of that is from playing for Thibodeau. And so maybe, you know, you kind of ease your foot off the, the pedal just a little bit just by not having that person as a coach anymore. But, I mean, he's got so many miles on his body and really – has the exact same minute profile as someone like Luol Deng did where, you know, the, I won't say the wheels came off because he's never really had a, a horrible statistical season, but obviously his stature and kind of the way he was used throughout the league had changed. And, you know, the way that he was being used has changed. And, and so Butler, if anything, has probably had even more on his back than Deng did because he's been kind of a top flight scorer for his teams the last few years as well in addition to being the guy that has to guard the best player on the other team. And when I go back and watch games, I go back and watch games against Oklahoma City and the Timberwolves last year. Butler's guarding Westbrook. It's not as if he's just guarding the best wing player. He's guarding the best guard. He might guard, you know, a, a small four or something like that if, if that happens to be the team's best score and someone that he's capable of being up. And so that that's a huge concern as well. Not to mention the fact that, you know, he's had issues now with, two sets of younger teammates uh, on his way out with the Bulls. You remember him and Dwayne Wade kind of making the comments about being frustrated with the younger teammates, not giving full effort or not wanting it as badly. And then Rajon Rondo kind of having to step up for those younger teammates and saying like leaders don't talk that way. And so the idea that he kind of alienated teammates there in Chicago and that you, you didn't have to get rid of him, but you chose to get rid of him in Chicago in part because of that. And then in part because you weren't sure that they could really mesh well. And obviously in Minnesota now, we've kind of heard differing versions of the same story. But, it, you know, and, and Carl Anthony Towns even acknowledged this. He said it was awkward timing, obviously, for him to sign his extension as the news about Jimmy Butler was getting out about the fact that there were reports out there that said that Carl Anthony Towns wasn't going to sign the extension until he had a clear sense of what was happening with Butler. He denied that that was why he waited to do it. But let's be honest here. I mean, something wasn't right in that locker room. And, you know, and Tosh Gibson has kind of spoken to that. Gorgie Jang has kind of spoken to that about the fact that it just didn't seem like they were having much fun last year, even as they made their first playoff appearance in 14 years. And and so you you kind of put those different elements together. and, And Butler, all of a sudden, he's kind of a difficult player to build around for a lot of different reasons. He misses considerable time with injuries every now and then, which is expected when you play as much as he does. You know, he's a very kind of sandpapery dude when you talk about just the way he gets along with teammates, particularly on a team that isn't uh, elite and isn't winning 60 games. And so that's all stuff you have to take into consideration, particularly when you're looking at a team like Miami, where you've got a guy like Josh Richardson that just kind of a lunch pail guy that doesn't really say much and, you know, doesn't have a massive personality uh, the way that Butler has kind of developed into. So I, 
I understand why it's a challenging decision, let alone the fact that now you've got to decide exactly how much are we giving this guy. Because I'll be really honest, I love Jimmy Butler. I've, I've had a chance to watch him up close several times being here in Chicago. I wouldn't be excited to pay a max to someone like that, even though he is good, even though you know Minnesota was right in that three seed for the whole season that he was healthy, basically. And he, he clearly can kind of change a team's outlook very quickly by just being added to it. But he just has so much mileage on his body. And that's not something that he can control now. I mean, I, I thought it was stunning that he didn't play in the All-Star game and basically came right out and said, my body is tired. And, you know, he had had a right knee injury in January. And so, you know, nobody knew exactly if, if he was sitting out because there was something hurting him. But then five days after that All-Star game, he plays, he re-injures that right knee and then needs surgery on it. So to me, it kind of looked like he actually knew that something was off and, you know, wanted to sit out and then tried to get stuff back in gear once the season ramps back up after the All-Star break and hurt himself then. And so that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's just that I feel like there could be a lot of things like that with him that he, he's just a bulldog. He tries to play through them and that's who he is. You know, that's who he was coached by in Minnesota. And so you hope that those things improve and aren't as much of an issue and that teams kind of treat him more delicately going forward. But um, you also don't pay max money to guys normally to kind of treat them that way. So we'll see what happens, but I would be very nervous about signing him a total max deal through the age of what, 35, 34, whatever it'll be. Yeah. And that gets into exactly the other thing I wanted to say, which is that trading for Jimmy Butler basically means that you have to at least put the five year, a five year contract on the table. So there is actually a benefit to not being that team as well. It, depending on if you think you can sign him outright, like there was that talk about maybe the Clippers trading for and I'm sitting there. If I'm the Clippers, I would actually probably rather not trade for Jimmy Butler because then you could say, Hey, look, four year max or near max, but probably max. That's the most we can offer. And then you kind of get out of it clean because you're saying like, this is all we can do. We, we don't need to go into this fifth year. We don't need to do that risk. And if Minnesota is not giving him up at a cheap price, you know, that changes the calculus too. But if they're not, let's say they're, they're holding firm on whatever that is. And there was some reporting out there today that what Minnesota is now looking for from Miami is Richardson, Bam, and a first, which good blanking luck if that's what you want. But at this point, given the leverage and everything else, and so that's actually another part of this too. Like this, so for certain teams, that's different. Like Miami, because they can't sign him outright, at least with the books the way they are currently. But if you're the Knicks or the Clippers, who are the other, or the Nets, all three teams could sign him outright. I would probably rather not have Jimmy Butler on this team, especially because. He elevates all of them. I mean, Jimmy Butler is a wonderful player, and pretty much whatever they give up, I think Jimmy Butler will make them a better team. But I don't think he makes them better by enough to to make it worth it. Which is a really tough realization, too. I mean, I, I look at certain teams. I've been really critical for a while of Portland in particular. Uh, but Portland, you know, Miami is a team that I think now for two years, I've kind of been a little bit confused as to what their strategy is, just because certain teams, you, you look at them and particularly when they put their contracts out there, Portland's got Evan Turner, you know, before they had Crab, and, and you look at Miami and Miami had so many guys that are kind of signed for anywhere between 10 and 15 million a year that are all good, solid players, you know, at least average to above average, players, but really no flat out star. Even Whiteside is someone that, you know, is not an all-star player, but, you know, has games where he just blows everyone else out of the water has games where he's just a dominant force defensively, has games where he's actually going to put up 24, 25 points in a game, and you, you immediately see why they at least felt like they had to do something to keep him. Maybe not max, but 
something to keep them. But they have so many guys on that roster that are like that now where they don't have enough of a, a difference maker, you know, with Wade being as old as he is and Dragic kind of being, you know, out of his prime as well. They just have too many guys that make a lot of money to really bring in a, a difference maker as far as, you know, max level talent. Um, and so Butler would change that calculus, obviously. But like you said, is he doing enough to where he puts you in the same echelon with the other top three teams in the East, meaning Toronto, Boston, and Philly? My answer is probably no, especially if you're giving up essentially two first rounders and Josh Richardson as well. And so that that's kind of the tough part is that, yes, Miami needs him. And if they could get him without having to give up, you know, you figure maybe two of those three that you just mentioned, maybe a first rounder and bam, maybe, you know, and obviously you would need something to fit the salary, maybe Josh Richardson and the first rounder, but you can't give up. You can't give up all three. You look at Portland. It, it's weird. I, I look at Portland and I, I honestly would probably be more inclined to do something. I, I was part of me, the basketball fan of me was so angry that Portland kind of had that conflict of interest there with, uh, with Nurkic's agent uh, during the whole boogie thing. The idea that they were trying to orchestrate a sign and trade and then kind of realize we, we can't do it because the same agency represents both Cousins and Nurkic. And so we're not willing to do that. But they clearly need to shake something up. And I felt like they kind of came back this summer pretty much the same. So the teams that basically find themselves stuck, whether it's cap-wise, you know, that they can't get something done and that their roster, they're just kind of running back the same roster that clearly didn't have enough last year. Those are the sorts of teams, I think, that need to make a big move here. But obviously, you don't want to make one that makes you worse, um, especially this year, but, but obviously not in a year or two either. But you clearly need something done. It's just a question of how much can you give up before you say, I, I, I don't have the assets to do that or we can't give up this much to get it done. You don't want to change just for the sake of changing. And frankly, with this late in the summer now, we're not even in summer anymore. Uh, at this point in the year, you don't want to mess up your team's chemistry so badly and kind of tilt things so far in, in one direction where you've totally changed or gutted your team. And uh and that's kind of the fear, you know, for Miami in particular. I just kind of feel like Butler would become the best player on that team. Butler would, you know, be the highest usage guy on that team. He would replace a very popular player on that team. And Richardson, you'd be giving up a first rounder. You'd be giving up Bam. That's a lot. And uh, and so I, if that's what they're asking for, if that's now what Minnesota is asking for, I get why it hasn't gotten done. But it's also a question of, like, what realistically is Minnesota going to get? And are they realistically going to try to go into the season with Jimmy Butler? I know Thibodeau would love to do that, but at a certain point, knowing Glenn Taylor, I just kind of wonder how long do you let this drag out? Especially if Thibodeau is going into this year, and we all know it's a big year for him. Uh, at a certain point, can't you just step in and say, like, enough. Like, I'm not going to let you do this. And if you do that, you know, it's going to make stuff more acrimonious between him and Thibs. But you also get the impression that <laughs> if, if he's kind of on thin ice already, that you wouldn't want to push too far if you're the coach here um, in this sort of situation. Well, and, and this gets into another thing. I've talked about this in a few different contexts, not in this one specifically, which is, if as the owner, you don't trust your general manager to make a trade, you should probably have a different general manager because that's their whole job. If, if you don't trust him to do that, then I mean, it's this whole circumstance and you could you could make that a present issue of just identifying the, the issue or you could make it a ju- past judgment issue like, hey, this is why you don't give 
both jobs to the same person. But Glenn Taylor has put himself in this super awkward position by also, and this is the other huge problem in this specific story, is by undercutting his own personnel people by making these statements and by talking to these owners extemporaneously. Like he he's put himself in a big problem because now the the other teams are sitting there going, well, do we even trust what Thibodeau is saying? Because look at what the owner's saying; these aren't the same thing. Well, yeah, that, that's part of it. And I, I mean, I think that after this, especially depending on how it unfolds and how it unravels, aside from Pop, and you know, Pop obviously still has R.C. Buford doing the day-to-day stuff for him. I don't think we're going to see kind of this dual role gig anymore in the NBA for exactly the reason you're pointing out. I, I think really, you know, I think it's hindsight for people, so I think it's a little bit harder to remember. Thibodeau was on a, a handful of teams' radars before he took this job. I mean, he sat out the one season and, you know, it was kind of a sabbatical, and you remember he was popping up at, was it Warriors practices? He was, he was kind of traveling the country and going to games and you know, a lot of teams at the time during the year he sat out. And, you know, there, there was the thought that he had kind of been at least talking uh, informally uh, with, with different teams about what kind of role he could take on, obviously, to be a coach. He wanted more than that, and it's kind of understandable as to why, because he felt as if he was forced out by a front office in Chicago that just didn't like him personally, and he didn't want something like that to happen here. So he kind of wanted to call his own shot, and, you know, he, he didn't want the idea of, you know, a coach being fired on his watch where it was kind of more something to do with Thibodeau than it was that coach. You remember Ron Adams got fired, and Thibodeau wasn't able to do anything about it. And so there are a lot of things that rubbed him the wrong way. So I understand it from that from that point, you know, Thibodeau wanting that. You know, if it, it was the Timberwolves. The Timberwolves have a horrible kind of front office history, horrible ownership history. I understand Thibodeau kind of coming in with the success he had in Chicago, with the success he's had with a number of young players, wanting to kind of come in and basically be able to run the show the way he wants to. That said, there's no job in the sport where the owner can't unilaterally just come in and say enough. And so that that's kind of where I'm confused here. It's just I, I could have understood if Glenn Taylor said, I'm getting out of the way. I'm going to let Tom handle this exactly the way he wants to. In some ways, because if he really botches it, then it gives you even more to blame him for. And so then you can fire him anyway. But since Glenn Taylor pretty much came in and said, well, I guess he hasn't said this publicly, but this is a, all the reporting has pointed to this, especially from Woj and people like that, and John Krasinski and Sham Sharania, all these people have reported this now at this point, is that Glenn Taylor is involved. Glenn Taylor will make a deal above Thibodeau's head if he has to, to make sure that this doesn't drag out. Well, now it's dragged out. And so to me, I'm kind of wondering if now Glenn Taylor has kind of taken more of the position that Thibodeau has, where we really need to get everything we want here to make this deal happen. Don't rush it. But it, it just has gotten so awkward. You know, if Glenn Taylor wanted to, to take that approach and just make it happen right away, he could do that. And there's nothing that Thibodeau would really be able to do about it. He'd be angry, and maybe he'd act defiantly during the season as he's coaching the team. But if he acts incredibly defiantly, then Glenn Taylor can just fire him anyway and do it quicker than we all were anticipating. So, I mean, I, I do think there's some reasons that he can't do that, that Glenn Taylor can't just unilaterally take this out on Thibodeau right now. You can't leave a team without a coach this early in the process. The season hasn't started. And also, if you do that, then it's kind of a um, a warning shot or you'd be firing Scott Lade at the same time. And so then you'd be leaving them without a coach or a GM right as the season is starting, which is not a good idea. So, you know, I guess you have the two younger guys locked in where it's not going to cost you from that standpoint. You've got them there. They're not going to be able to leave or wiggle their way out. 
right away, but I guess Glenn Taylor wants to save face here as well. But it's just awkward that um, nothing's been resolved. And, you know, it feels like there could have been something done. They could make their asking price lower to get something done. And at a certain point, you normally cut your losses and stuff. But again, you know, and, and Thibodeau kept reiterating, he thinks Butler's a top 10 player. When you're trading someone of that stature, you absolutely have to get it right. And so maybe that's the approach they're taking. But it, it feels like Len Taylor's opinion has shifted more in that direction lately, too. Whereas before, at the start of this process, he wanted to get something done by the beginning of last week. And it's really interesting that he hasn't so far. I will note that there is a third path, but I'm also not sure Glenn Taylor has the finesse to pull it off, which is actually similar to what the Clippers did with Doc, which is you separate an individual from the personnel responsibilities and say, you're still under contract to coach. If you want, we're still going to pay you the exact same amount of money that we're paying you. And if you want to not coach, then we won't pay you. And then we'll have somebody else run it. The problem with that is you would have to hire somebody to run the personnel side and the Jimmy Butler thing is ongoing. So it's it's basically, or you could theoretically empower lower people currently in your front office or something like that. But if they're Tibbs loyalists, then that becomes an issue. Their whole, there are no easy solutions here, which is which is always a challenge. Going to take a quick moment to tell you about new sponsor of the show, one I'm incredibly excited to have on board, and that is the anticipated new drama on the CW, All-American. It premieres October 10th, on the CW, and it's the new show from Greg Berlanti, who many of you know from Riverdale, from Black Lightning. He's involved in a lot of the other CW shows, and this is his foray into sports, and it's an interesting story and one that I'm actually familiar with because it's inspired by Spencer Pacinger, who was coming up in the LA football scene right around when I was leaving, and he was starring in South Central, but then was recruited to play for a high school in Beverly Hills, and I was fortunate enough to watch the pilot, and it lays out the, the first pieces of that story. I thought that Tay Diggs did a very nice job. He plays the coach of Spencer, who's the main character. And something that I really liked about the pilot reminded me actually of Black Lightning, another Berlanti pilot from last year, which was one of my favorite shows, which is that it wasn't afraid to build depth in its characters and in its world right away. I mean, a lot of pilots are really just laying out the chess pieces, and that's fine. That's what a pilot can do. And it gets really substantive. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And so if you want to check it out for yourself, I I recommend you do so. The show launches Wednesday, October 10th on The CW. All American. Check it out. Also want to tell you about betonline.ag. As you know, hopefully by now, they're doing an awesome pick prediction contest for the NFL. And I've been having a rough go of it, but I actually had a perfect week last week, which is pretty exciting. And this was a harder one for predictions. So we'll see if it works out. I picked my lock of the week is Carolina over the New York Giants. I think that Carolina is legit and I'm concerned about the Giants overall, but it's a lot of fun. Betonline.ag and if there's a game that you're going to watch no matter what, it's a really nice way to, to make it even more interesting to give yourself a little bit more of a rooting interest. And if the, if there's maybe a night that you're home and you're going to watch something, it's definitely a way to make that more interesting. And to make it even more interesting, you can use the promo code PODCAST1, and that's written out O-N-E for PODCAST1. You get a 50% sign-up bonus. And you can get involved in a high-stakes football pool as well with the betonline.ag pick'em where you can win $25,000, which is awesome. So you can check it out for football, for baseball. We're in playoffs now. Basketball is, of course, getting started. And also you can check out UFC. There's a big fight on Saturday, October 6th. So if you're listening to this in the early part, you can check that out on betonline.ag as well. And again, use the podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. It's important for the league. I mean, we'll see how it turns out. And, and as you said earlier, 
my instinct is that this leads to, and the Stan Van Gundy one is an example of this as well, and numerous others, that uh, to a reduction or an elimination of these dual role people for a while. And there will always be kind of distinction without a difference circumstances like Popovich's heavy personnel role in San Antonio. Like he's not, not considered a coach GM, but he, from what I understand it, is the most important personnel decision maker in San Antonio. So there will always be people on that line. And I'm sure if people like Brad Stevens and Steve Kerr wanted to have a voice in the personnel process, probably not be the decider. They they could. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that'd be fine, especially Kerr's already been a GM. So there will always be a kind of a, a, a meshing point here. But outside of that meshing point, just straight up giving those responsibilities to both people, obviously somebody will, you know, it'll, it'll go away and then it'll come back for various reasons at some point, like five to 10 years from now. But it will be interesting to kind of see how that, how that ebbs and flows now. Yeah. Like you said, I, I think, and even Kerr talked about this the other day as they were playing against Minnesota, that he basically said, I wouldn't want those two roles. He, he was just saying about, the stress that comes with it, you know, you have to think differently. You have to think more from a long-term standpoint where coaches aren't really wired to do that. You know, maybe from a playing time standpoint, they can wire themselves to do that. And some people, frankly, I mean, Thibodeau obviously is not one of those people, but, but you know, that's, that, that's what would be interesting here. And, and, and honestly, again, after what Thibodeau dealt with in Chicago, just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sure for him, the way he got along with Ron Adams and the way everyone gets along with Ron Adams, he felt like one of his arms was being cut off in Chicago when the front office decided, decided to fire Ron Adams. And from that point forward, everything he did in conjunction with the front office was kind of uh, ugly. You know, I remember they gave him a coaching extension and a new contract and, and Thibodeau just didn't sign it. It just sat there unsigned for months. And literally everything that took place between those two parties from that point was strained. And so I, I kind of get the impression that if something like that were to happen, where you, you reference Doc's situation and kind of removing his front office title, if that were to be done with Thibodeau, I'm sure he would not like it. I mean, obviously he would not like it, but I, I really do get the impression that that was part of the reason he pushed for that and obviously was given it because of what happened in Chicago. And so it would be interesting to see if that happened. I think even more interesting, if, if Thibodeau does lose both jobs in the next year, what does the market look like to bring him on with another team? Because obviously the guy can coach. I mean, there's no question about that. I do think it's, it's very worth looking at what's kind of gone wrong in Minnesota from a defensive standpoint, because that's kind of been his bread and butter for years, and, or at least what's the perception of what he's best at and where he really excels and where he helps teams. The fact that they haven't been good on defense and even after bringing in Jimmy Butler that they didn't really get any better defensively and, you know, one more year of coaching the young guys that they didn't get better on defense, you know, I, I think it would be fascinating to kind of see what the market looks like for him after two jobs where he's kind of had a similar thought process in mind as far as playing time that he really hasn't seemingly evolved at all as far as um, the way he views that and the way that he views just running guys to the limit. So that, that would be interesting. Obviously, he, he would not be hired in the same sort of role that he got in Minnesota, where he's a dual role coach. But would there be great demand for him? I, I tend to think not. Would there be demand for him? Would somebody want him as a coach and probably put parameters in place where they say, you know, you need to really take it easy with certain things on this job or else I'm going to get involved as the owner or, you know, we're going to have a GM that is kind of keeping you in check as far as they think. Maybe. 
But would Thibodeau go for that? You know, is, is he someone that just doesn't like to be corralled at any point? And does that take too much of the process out of his hands for him to be comfortable with it? So there are a lot of things that would become very interesting if the Timberwolves do decide to wash their hands of this. Um, also, you know, what sort of coach do you bring in to kind of take the process up from where they are right now? Because um, a team without Butler, all of a sudden, there's still going to be pressure on them because you've got two max guys. But, you know, frankly, depending on who they get back in this trade, no one's going to have any expectation of them being top three, top four team in the West anymore. And, you know, depending on who they get back or who, who all they lose in this, you know, maybe we don't even think they're a playoff team, you know, without Butler. So it, 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 there are a lot of fascinating questions. I, I totally understand Thibodeau's reluctant to trade Butler, but I'm also very surprised by how reluctant he is to trade him, given that the longer this drags out, and, you know, potentially the more you frustrate Glenn Taylor with it, the, the more it may actually end up costing him his job at a later point. Maybe not right this moment, but um, you, you tend to think that Glenn Taylor is not happy about the way this has played out. Something else that fascinates me, you got into this in terms of playing time, but I think it's a, a more broad issue than that, is Thibodeau's lack of evolution in terms of the way the game is moving more broadly. So Minnesota last year... They were fourth from last in transition frequency. Fourth, they were 27th in transition frequency off of an off of a live rebound. And sure, there are there are a couple reasons why a team structured the way they are wouldn't run as much. I mean, you're playing your starters a ton of minutes. They're you know they're playing Taj Gibson at the four as an example. You know, it's not a particularly like they have young guys, but it's not a young team in that sense because they have a lot of they have a lot of vets. Part of that part of the way Thibodeau built this team. But anyway, you have all that. And so, and then also, and this is part, it gets into the idea of who the next coach would be. There's been some discussion, partially with that GM survey and other things about Carl Anthony Towns. And Carl Anthony Towns is on the short list, if not the single most offensively talented overall big man in the entire league. The fundamental problem though with that is it's still really hard to build a successful two-way team around a, a, a center who's dominant, but not really that back to the back guy like Towns is amazing and I think you could do it but I think part of why he fell in that who do you build around thing is that while Thibodeau hasn't done a good job to me of ma- capitalizing on Towns' strengths of maximizing what he can be on that end of the floor it isn't that easy to do this isn't some sort of situation like let's say what, what I think Budenholzer is doing looks to be doing in Milwaukee and we saw some of that in their game last night against Chicago is there are some easier fixes there. I think with Towns, it's a harder conversation. There are certainly ways to do it because he's that good. But it is more of a challenge, and I think it's a challenge that Thibodeau has largely failed at. Oh, I mean, I'll be really honest with you, and I don't know the dynamics of what happened or what was said in in Minnesota's locker room last year and the the rumors with Butler and and Towns. To me, if I was Towns, what would have held me up from signing the extension was Thibodeau and kind of, in some cases, the way he talked about Towns. You remember that Rocket series, obviously. There, there was the one game where, what was it, Towns only got five or six shots or whatever, and then, you know, Thibodeau got on him for not being aggressive enough. And, you know, it, it's just kind of like, well, some of it is that. I'm sure he could be more aggressive, but why aren't you calling plays for, like you said, maybe the single – most young, talented big in the league. You know, I'm sure most people would probably put Davis right there above him. But 
Also, Davis has an entire offense built around him and his skill set. Whereas with Towns, maybe it would have been that way, but then Butler came in. And, you know, if you look at Towns' numbers from the year before Butler came in, he was at 25 and 12. And so the idea that anybody can do that around the age of 20, 21, whatever Towns is, that that's pretty amazing to think that we're, we're even having a conversation about why or how someone isn't more involved with their offense when they're putting up those numbers with the sort of efficiency he has. No, he's not the defensive player he was in college. And part of that is that, you know, the the league has changed quite a bit since even Towns was in college, just from the standpoint of people like Towns, where guys can shoot from anywhere. You've got people like Jokic who can pass the way they do. You know, he's still adjusting to not fouling much and, and stuff like that. He plays around other guys on his team that aren't particularly good defenders. And he plays in a pretty conservative sort of style where Thibodeau, you know, because he's coaching a number of guys that are younger that don't have the experience yet in the NBA, um, that he doesn't want Towns to come up too far defensively away from the basket. And so, you know, I, I kind of feel like Towns instinctively is probably not that bad defensively, but I kind of feel like it's that, that dog in the fence scenario where, you know, the dog has an electric fence and he kind of knows if he goes out too far that he's going to get uh, shot. And I kind of feel like you see some of those wheels turning in Towns' head sometimes, or he makes an amazing play every now and then, but it doesn't happen that often because he's fearful of doing the wrong thing, which, again, might speak to Thibodeau and kind of his philosophy and the way that he deals with some younger guys. And so that's that's the interesting thing is, is kind of the fact that Towns signed the extension, people are pointing to the Butler thing as a reason. Uh, I would have been curious about what my role is in all this if I'm Towns, given that it seemed like at times Thibs almost wanted him to be the third or the fourth option as opposed to the first or the second option. And that's just kind of hard. It's kind of befuddling when you consider how talented the guy is. Well, and that gets into something else that's bothered me about the way Thibodeau's run this team is that Andrew Wiggins, the brakes have not been put on him enough. I mean, Andrew Wiggins is clearly at best the third option offensively when you have a team with Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns. And while I am lower on Wiggins than most, I, most, I think even Wiggins optimists would agree with that. I mean, that's Towns is a way better offensive player. Jimmy Butler is a way better offensive player. And certainly there are elements of a guy's instincts and a guy's game that A, you don't want to take away from them and B, maybe you can't. But there are also accountability elements that any coach has to do. And so I'm guessing that's pissing off towns too, where you have these players, not necessarily just Wiggins, but Wiggins is a part of this, who don't have the the kind of the, the limitations that Towns does. And you're like, hey, I'm really good. I'm better than these guys. I should get the opportunity. Oh, of course. I mean, and, and the, the funny thing is that, you know, Thibodeau in his head coaching career has really only had, up to this point, has really only had ball-dominant wing players and guards. And so he knows what uh, Jimmy Butler looks like, obviously, from his time in Chicago and, and now recently. He knows what a Derrick Rose looks like. He knows what a Lou Dang looks like. Not, and, and going back, obviously, Lou Dang was not what Jimmy Butler is offensively, but he was trusted more. He, you know, he had Jamal Crawford on the roster. So he, he's had all these guys. And now Wiggins obviously fits that narrative, too. You know, very few people have been able to coach Carl Anthony Towns, you know, have had someone of his caliber offensively. But, you know, he, he seems tougher on him for whatever reason. Maybe it's the way he's talked about. Um, you know, Wiggins has not sniffed the idea of an all-NBA team. Uh, Towns has already made one. And so the idea that, you know, I, I guess Thibodeau coached some some pretty good bigs in the system. He said Garnett there. Maybe he's expecting more of him. Maybe he wants him to be more of a playmaker. I'm not sure why, but like you said, those restrictions have not been placed on Wiggins. And from an effort standpoint, the one thing that I'm generally not questioning, what Towns every now and then will have a lazy play, which I think it's hard to avoid that. 
uh, when you play with other guys that are not trying their hardest. And, you know, before someone really gets into them to show them what they're supposed to be doing and how you can't really let up at certain moments. But Wiggins, as Nate Duncan has pointed out several times, I'm sure you have as well, uh, Wiggins has entire halves and games sometimes where he's just, you know, for how skilled um, he could be and how athletic he is, that you know he's capable of doing a lot more. You know he's capable of making a better effort to block a shot. You know he's capable of running somebody down. You know he's capable of being in a better spot defensively, and he's just not there, but doesn't really have any sort of leash when it comes to playing time at all. He's actually right behind Butler as far as the minutes per game, uh, right about 36 for the last four or five years, and sometimes can take some pretty wild shots, at least difficult ones, if not wild, and, you know, and, and again, doesn't really have the restrictions put there that Towns seems to have um, and doesn't, I can't really remember any times that Thibodeau has been just really, really critical of Wiggins the way he has been with Towns, especially, like I said, it stood out a lot during the playoffs, but we don't see that many games where Wiggins just doesn't get shot. Uh, Wiggins is going to get his shots up one way or the other. There are games where Towns doesn't, and it, it, it seems like more of a function of kind of where do I fit within this offense. But yeah, that's the big one. And I mean, I think really when we talk about the Timberwolves and what's going to kind of be their undoing, people will point to the Butler trade if they don't feel like they get enough in return. Uh, my bigger answer would be the fact that they just agreed to give Wiggins a, a max extension without really he, – he scores enough to merit that well, on the one and hand. And that they did it a year been, early. I think that's the other big they part. They did it here. early. It's like it, yeah. if if for whatever reason the rubber met the road and it's like this is when we have to do it and like let's say Sacramento, because I'm thinking of Zach Levine here, made him a max offer sheet and then you're sitting there going match or not match. That is a very different conversation than giving him the full five-year boat a full year in advance. Like that what that decision, which it seems like was more of a Glenn Taylor decision than a Tom Thibodeau decision. Oh, is, it was is really problematic. And those always should be an ownership decision. That's the way this works. And that's why ownership is the greatest competitive advantage in the NBA. But it's a fundamental challenge. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, it's just, it's a problem. And it shows, it shows how these things can go awry. Yeah. I mean, that when we look back two, three years from now, which it may not even take that long, but um, I'm just even trying to imagine how many points per game and on what sort of efficiency Wiggins would even have to score to make his deal worth that much. I, I just, I don't see it. And I mean, he's not good enough at, at enough things to justify that. I mean, he, he absolutely, I mean, he's, he's kind of, and this might be too glowy of kind of a, a comparison to make, but like Rudy Gay, you know, Rudy Gay was probably a better defender than he is and more consistent. And, you know, he, but the, the tough shot making and, kind of the physical profile of someone that you would expect to get a deal like that, but just not, he, he's got too many gaps in his game. He's not really a difference maker as a passer. You know, he, he's not, and, and that's the tough thing is that he didn't gel particularly well with Butler and again, which is kind of one of those things where Butler's got such a big personality and he's good at handling the ball and he takes a lot of shots himself. And so since they're kind of doing the same sort of thing or being asked to do the same thing, especially when they're not out there together. Wiggins probably had some of that, like, where do I fit here as well? But he's more willing to shoot the ball than Towns is in a situation where he's got that question in his head. And so I just kind of feel like not knowing the answer to some of those questions about fit and everything, um, I just don't. It's really hard to build a team when you have a max contract on someone that probably doesn't deserve one or shouldn't have one. Uh, that's being overpaid to that extent for that length of a of time. 
And so I, you know, I, I do wonder if, if they've already kind of done some things with the roster that are too far off to really be a playoff team consistently if and when they lose Butler and don't get the greatest return for him that they could have. And, and I kind of feel like timing alone has kind of already dictated they're probably not going to get the absolute best return that they could have. Um, but I'm, I'm curious at this point kind of what direction they go because it's been, there have been a, a series of things that have just been handled poorly, but that's kind of the reputation that this organization has. Yeah, I'm really interested to see where it turns out too. Plenty more to talk about with Chris Herring, but first a message from Pluto TV. And Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And my single favorite part of it is that not only does Pluto TV never ask for a credit card, You don't even need to sign up if you want to watch it for free. That makes it the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. What's more, you can download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Smart TV, PlayStation, Apple TV, and anywhere else you stream. I've checked out their interface on a couple different platforms. Really, really enjoy it. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Also want to tell you about our friends at TrueCar. Here are a few football facts you might not even know about. The first football game was played in 1869. In an average game, the ball is typically in play for only about 11 minutes. And finally, pizza consumption rates go up during the week of a big game. Okay, you probably knew that last one. Well, here's another fact you might not know that's also really useful, especially if you plan on tailgating. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right, True Car is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar. Enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I don't have a ton of time remaining, so I wanted to open the floor. We can talk about it each, but uh, the stories and the dynamics that you're most interested in seeing and learning about this year. You know, I'm I'm really interested to see the, the teams that are getting back guys that were hurt from last year. Uh, I mean, I think obviously LeBron is going to be a massive story. We just had a, a big uh, reporters meeting for all the NBA reporters at ESPN um, maybe three weeks ago out in Los Angeles, and you know, we talked and we. we we basically talked about the Warriors and the Lakers, you know, where we kind of split up and we talked about our story ideas for the year. And we had one day that was focused on, not one day, but like one hour that was focused solely on Warriors ideas and one hour that was focused solely on Lakers ideas. And that kind of gives you a sense of what the narratives and the storylines are going to be just in general. But beyond those two things, which I think are kind of obvious that they're going to be big stories this year, I really am curious to see, you know, what, level does Boston have a next level from where they were last year did that already happen even without getting these guys back just because the Celtics um, don't have to deal with LeBron anymore but but how do these guys fit now that you've got so many guys that are talented that are relatively young um, you know if they're a jealousy factor which I don't I don't get the impression there will be but maybe there could be uh, with Hayward coming back with Irving being healthy again after Rozier and 
and Tatum and Brown have kind of had their chance to shine. So interested in that, obviously interested in Toronto and Kawhi, then kind of how that works and how it needs to work to try to get Kawhi to come back next year. The team I'm really interested in that may not be the flashiest or the sexiest um, on the West, actually, is, is one of them is Memphis, just because that team was kind of so hamstrung last year by not only Conley being out basically the whole year, but the stuff going off the rails with the soul and with Fisdale and kind of how they were battling that. And then having to battle with the interim situation after that. And, you know, just a year where everything kind of went wrong for them. And then they obviously kind of were tanking to try to get a better pick. But I, I love Jaron Jackson Jr. I think that he could be great for them. You look at some of the deals they swung in the off season, just to get two way guys on that roster, guys that can play both sides of the floor, plus getting back, someone like Conley healthy again and, and hopefully, you know, a, a fully motivated Gasol at this point. I, I, I'm reluctant to say I think they'll definitely be in the playoffs, but I could see it. And I, I think that there are other teams that, you know, I've been very low on Portland. Uh, you know, they were kind of a team that had everything go right last year for them and went on the, the big win streak at one point, but didn't really have any injuries compared to the rest of the teams in the West. Uh, obviously, the Lakers are going to be expected to make the playoffs by most people, not everyone. I think I saw Tim Bontemps' column today where he said he doesn't think they're going to make the playoffs. But but generally speaking, I mean, I, I, I could see how Memphis fights their way back in the playoffs just now because they've got a team that it may not quite be grit and grind necessarily, but to some extent it is. And I think that they're kind of getting back to their old principles with more shooting on the floor. And so I'm really interested to see how Memphis does with a healthy Mike Conley, assuming that he can stay healthy. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. I know there are a lot of other storylines out there, but the teams that were missing a key guy or two last year that have those guys back and can look like themselves again, how do they do this year? And that's kind of what I'm most interested in. Yeah, those are great. I'll add in two other under-the-radar stories, and, and what I'm calling these are test cases. And so one test case is in Milwaukee, and that's coaching, sure. competent coaching versus less than competent coaching. And so, I mean, I thought there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. The, the Bucks they have this athletic personnel, that, especially defensively, that they could have been a much better team than they were. And then offensively, they still could have been better. I mean, granted, Teams are going to look better against Chicago than they will against other teams. But I think we saw signs of that on Wednesday night. When you they... and I both saw that, yeah, last night. And so you have that. That's one test case. The other test case, and just for selfish reasons, I'm intensely excited about this, is that Cleveland basically didn't do anything after LeBron left. Because we saw, we've seen LeBron leave a couple of different places. And, you know, Miami ended up not making the playoffs the year after he left for a couple of different reasons. And then Cleveland just fell off a cliff, obviously. And this year's Cleveland team is definitely more talented than the last Cleveland team. I'd have to really go back. And I'm trying to remember who was healthy on that Miami team in, in 2015, but, or that would have been 1415. But I think that what's going to be so fascinating about Cleveland is it's not only a test for their players, but it's also a test for Ty Lue because I've said publicly that I do not feel like I have a sense of whether he's a good coach or not, because coaching LeBron James is an entirely different challenge. There are benefits to it and there are costs to it. And now we're going to get to learn that because especially this team has unusual, especially offensively strengths. So like using Kevin Love right is not something that we talked about this with Towns and, you know, Love had similar challenges. Some of that in Minnesota, he's, he's a hard guy to use perfectly. There are lots of ways to use him well, but to, to really get the most out of him. Also, George Hill has been hit or miss. 
Sexton, young point guards are always a challenge. And so to see, I mean, the Lakers are their own thing, but to see what Cleveland looks like, okay, a team that you remove the alpha, you remove the everything that we thought of as as made them special. And what are they? Do they care more on defense? Do they execute more on defense? Can they put together an offensive philosophy? I'm going to be watching a lot of the Cavs in the first month of this season. That's interesting. I, I mean, I I have that question kind of in the reverse a lot of times, just as, um, you know, what happens when you, uh, this is what I'm really interested in the Lakers, probably even more so than just with LeBron. How does the coaching situation change overnight when you get a star player or a set of star players on your team when you weren't expecting that, particularly with the younger coach? And so, or with a coach that's just less experienced in the NBA. And so this obviously happened last time LeBron switched teams. And when he went to Cleveland, David Blatt had just agreed to the job. And then a couple of weeks later, however much later it was, maybe a couple of months, then LeBron gets there. And then obviously LeBron, you know, made it clear that he wanted Cleveland to trade for Kevin Love. So they gave up Wiggins. But Blatt thought he was walking into a situation where he was going to have Wiggins and Kyrie Irving on the roster. You know, a team that hadn't made the playoffs with just Irving before. And so all of a sudden he goes from having a job where the expectations, you know, no, there's no glare on Cleveland at that point. Um, the league as a whole probably doesn't care that much about, you know, that, that team and doesn't circle that game on, on the calendar. And then all of a sudden LeBron is there. And so is Kevin Love in addition to Kyrie. And now they're being pegged as one of the two favorites maybe in the East and, you know, a favorite to, to make some noise in the playoffs. And so that sort of thing. I look back at a situation like uh, with, with basically with the Nets, uh, with Jason Kidd and the fact that he came in days after the season ended and, and retired and joined the Nets. And, and then all of a sudden they go and they trade for Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. And Jason Kidd has never coached before. And so you go from a team with basically just Darren Williams to all of a sudden having a team that is on the cover of Sports Illustrated and that there are real expectations because there's real urgency to win right away. And so I I find situations like that fascinating. And I'm curious as to what it means for, because no, he's not a first year coach necessarily, but the job he took was very much kind of a developmental one with young guys and no real vets on the team, maybe Luol Deng, but you know, no one is going to be a a huge difference making vet um, at that point in their career. And all of a sudden now, uh, you know, the playoffs are definitely going to be an expectation. Braun kind of is a coach on the floor by himself and kind of has certain expectations and, and is not getting any younger at this point. And so at what point does it kind of hit a breaking point where if they start slowly, if there are certain things that LeBron wants to see that Walton is not putting out there on his own, at what point are people holding this against Luke Walton and how much is his timeline sped up by the nature of having LeBron on that roster? And is it fair for these coaches to kind of be judged um, that way? Because obviously Ty Lue's not coaching for a title now anymore. How much patience do have people have there with him and with the different decisions he's going to make with the lineups and stuff like that? When this is a guy that, you know, obviously it wasn't just him. There would have been no title without LeBron and without Kyrie Irving. But the guy that kind of oversaw a championship season in Cleveland's first championship season for the city, not even just the sport, but for the city in more than 50 years. And I'm, I'm kind of really interested in that dynamic um, of what is the longevity of these coaches, even when they do win, but then have some down seasons for obvious reasons or less obvious ones. So it's, it's going to be fascinating from that standpoint. It is. Somebody else that could be talked to for that kind of coach adjustment thing is actually Spo. I think with Miami, when they Absolutely. when they yep. brought in those guys, sure, Miami's always ambitious in free agency, but even if you have high hopes, you don't expect to get LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade together. 
and immediately be competing for a championship and have, I mean, that team not winning in 2011 is a huge disappointment. I mean, it ended up working out because they won two titles and everything else. But I mean, remember what that was, you know, that was the not three, not four, all that type of stuff. And then they lose, not only do they lose, but they lose to a, a Dallas team that wasn't that great. I mean, they were, they're certainly a deserving champion. I'm not trying to discount that at all, but it wasn't like they ran up against the 27 Yankees or something like they, they lost to a team they absolutely could have beaten. And so how that works for Spo that you go from, you know, let's just develop the players to win. Wade's awesome and work with that too. We lose in, I think that was six games in the NBA finals and it's a disappointment. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the talent just wasn't anywhere near what the, the heat had. And they, they were still trying to figure out how to kind of disperse that talent. They didn't really go to small ball. They didn't move to small ball until after that. They, you know, there, there were lots of things that kind of weren't really sketched out. I think Wade and LeBron in particular were still learning how to play off each other. And I want to say the year that they did win uh, was the was that next year was the year that Bosch got hurt and missed a big chunk of the playoffs and they kind of started playing differently. But but yeah, that's absolutely my point. And, and honestly, I don't think people remember it, but whether it was actually going to happen or not, there was a lot of talk about Spo and you know the, the idea that he should be fired um, because they had so much more talent than basically anybody else they were playing. And there was kind of a rush to judgment by a lot of fans that that Spo wasn't that good a coach and that he was only doing well wins and losses wise because of the fact that he had the talent that he had. And obviously I think the last few years alone have shown that he, uh, that he knows what he's doing, that he, he kind of has a philosophy of his own that works, that can work with a, a very average set of players. I would say, I mean, that's kind of the way I would describe Miami the last few years is that they've had, again, what I said earlier with, you know, they have a lot of guys that are, have heavy salary that have talent, but are not by any means, uh, big stars and that they've you know made the playoffs last year and I think at times that series was closer than it might have looked they, they they had really bad droughts in the middle of that series against the Sixers where they struggled to score sometimes but they got a top 10 defense and the year before that they missed the playoffs on the last day of the season the Bulls ended up making I think with a 41 and 41 record but the Bulls you know the, the Miami had gone on a massive win streak at the end of that season uh, the Bulls kind of backed their way into the playoffs and then I remember too the reason that the Bulls made it on the last day of the season, the Nets basically pulled all their relevant starters that game. And so the Bulls didn't have to really play a tough game to get into the playoffs the last day of the season. And Miami won that night as well, but you know, they, they didn't own the tiebreaker. And so the Bulls ended up making it instead. So they would have made it the last two years with a bunch of guys. Like has Miami had an all-star in the last, I'm trying to think the last time they had one. So, I mean, it's just, I, I think some people wanted Dragas to make the game. But I don't think he made it. So, I mean, Spo has done this with all stars, without all stars, with MVPs, without them. I mean, he's he's a great coach. I think, and, uh, you know, I think he's been a good example of kind of how it can pay off. It doesn't always pay off, but um, I think guys that can do that with an average roster and uh, get to the playoffs with an average roster who can continue to coach a team once the wheels fall off and the superstar is not there anymore. I think they deserve more of an opportunity than some of these guys get. Walton is going to be interesting because. He hasn't had that. Now he does have it. And so, you know, I think that we see him as being somewhat inventive and, you know, he comes from good stock as far as the stuff with the Warriors. He did well with that team. Uh, I'm hoping that he doesn't kind of get run out of there. I don't think that would happen this year. But if they do start very slowly, and I absolutely think that could happen with the expectations they're going to be thrust on this team, they're playing in the tougher of the two conferences. They're still going to have to figure out how to play together as, as a group. You know, they haven't had Lonzo Ball yet out there, who's going to be a big part of what they're They've also got a very combustible roster of, of kind of characters 
that will be worth watching for those reasons too. But it, it'll be it'll be fascinating one way or the other. Like I said, I, I I kind of take that as a given, and so that's why I didn't mention that as what what I'm really watching for because whether you're watching for it or not, that's going to make itself readily apparent to everybody with the Lakers, but I think there are a lot of other storylines this year that will be interesting as well. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to watch. I know your 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 time is limited, so we can end it here unless there's something else that you think is really important to talk about. No, I mean, I I, I think that the, the Milwaukee thing that you mentioned is kind of spot on. Uh, I know from tweeting with you that we were both watching the game last Sunday at the Bulls. I, I thought it was interesting. Zach Lowe put Peg to the Bulls at, I think, sixth in his league pass rankings, which – um, I ended up doing a television appearance yesterday, and everybody was kind of blown away by the fact that he had them that high. Um, they could be that entertaining. I don't know if they'll be entertaining in a good way. Uh, their defense is a mess, the Bulls. And, um, but in watching them look a mess, I also think that you know the Bucks could end up being that good offensively if stuff goes well for them. They they went and they kind of made this a, a Budenholzer roster right away by making sure that they plugged in a bunch of shooting, and now they have that. Watching them make the extra pass time and time again and just kind of spinning the Bulls in circles was pretty noteworthy off the bat yesterday as well. Um, Giannis taking pull-up threes, which we'll see how much of that stuff continues. I know preseason defenses are kind of playing more lightly, but they, they could be interesting. I mean, that's just the deep, the offensive side, uh, let alone, you know, obviously the defensive stuff that Jason Kidd had them doing that didn't always seem to make the most sense. So they, they could be very interesting. And I kind of feel like, uh, while I don't think that they will be a top three team in the East this year, that, you know, if that coaching hire turns out to be as helpful as a lot of us think it can be, you know, I think that you really have to watch out for a team like that in a year or two, just because as they figure out who else they want to kind of add to this roster and figure out ways to fit these pieces together, they already have so much talent in the one player, let alone Middleton, you know, let alone if you could find, a, you know, more of a role for uh, for Eric Bledsoe and kind of making him feel like he's more part of what's going on than last year where he was sulking throughout the playoffs. It could be a scary team. Absolutely. Very excited about it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me as always. Thanks again to Chris for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at 538 slash ESPN. They're connected, so I'll count it as one thing. And you can follow him on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA, H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA. So happy to have him on and to get his perspective on Butler. We had been a little bit loose about what we were going to talk about. And then once we got into that, I thought we went in some important and interesting directions. So hope you enjoyed that as well. I already have next week's show lined up, but as a Real GM Radio practice, I do not reveal my guest until we've recorded the episode just in case something happens. But I'm really excited about it. It should be a lot of fun. I'm also really excited to get back into Dunked On full-time. Nate and I are back to five episodes a week. And I'm not going to be as on as much next week because Nate's doing the end of the kind of team specific stuff. And since he has great guests for that, I will not be on. But then we'll really start full bore the week after. Have some writing projects that are coming out as well. Excited, of course, about that. And always more in the works. That's the way it goes. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing. But honestly, it's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If those two things are not the same thing, you can also write a review in both, which is amazing. And you can also subscribe, download every episode. Those things are incredibly important with a show like this, especially that comes out once a week, but on a different day. So you can't really get into a habit with it. So just having a subscription makes it easy. And the single most important thing with this show, with any other show, 
that has them is to check out our advertisers. All American debuts next week on the CW. You should definitely check it out. As I said, I watched the pilot, really enjoyed it. BetOnline.ag. You have that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. Pluto TV, leading way to watch free television. And True Car, great place to buy new and used cars. As I said, we'll be back next week. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do that. And we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea, Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get Thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. Love is in the air. And you know who really deserves some extra love? You, that's who. So treat yourself to a mental pick-me-up with Best Fiends. Unwind with thousands of brain-tickling levels and tons of cute collectible characters. Because even in the shortest month, you deserve all the me time you can get. Ready to boost your brain power? Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hey.